You're listening to the podcast for Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Buy tickets to upcoming live events in San Francisco at InforumSF.org. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at InforumSF. Welcome to Inforum at the Commonwealth Club. I am Daya Lakshminarayanan, a comedian, a storyteller, management consultant, MIT graduate, and all-around nerd. So that's what you can call me. Uh, today, uh, Jennifer Auker and Naomi Bagdonas and I are in conversation, which just means we're going to be talking about their book and pretending to be conversational over Zoom. Uh, Jennifer is a professor at the Stanford Graduate School of Business, and Naomi is a lecturer in management at Stanford, and we're discussing their new book, Humor Seriously, Why Humor is a Secret Weapon in Business and in Life. Audience, if you have a burning question or even a lukewarm or room temperature question, please enter it into the chat section of the live stream. We will get to as many of your questions as possible because we're kind of conversing between the three of us and then at some point we'll want to include extra people. So uh, let's get started. Thank you so much for joining me, Naomi and Jennifer. Happy book birthday to you all. Oh my, oh my god. god. Okay. okay. We're gonna like have a birthday party here. People, we just launched a baby. We did. Yeah. Maybe more painful than launching a real baby is launching a book, by the way. Um, yeah. I I love the balloons. I love the uh was it a tiara, Jennifer? What was that? <laughs> it was from my my bridge group. It was my friends. Um I think it's like a sparkly headband that looks like a Minnie Mouse, which is what we all celebrate book birthdays with. 100% mouse, mouse ears, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, congratulations on the book birthday. I want to say it's available to, It's available right now. Okay. Audiobook, Kindle, ebook, real book. Uh, I think if you pay enough, someone will come to your house and just scribe it on your wall uh, live. Is it available on Papyrus? Any way you want to consume it. It's yeah, it's available everywhere. We will fax it to you. We will, we will, yeah, we'll get on a horse and like gallop to you. We'll show up with a boom box on our shoulder and we'll sing it to you outside. Okay. Fantastic. I I, I also want to mention both of you are narrating the audiobook version along with Michael Lewis in the afterwards, right? So we get to hear your voice. Yes. This soothing voice for about 25 hours, or so it felt like. When we were recording, I I uh, so congratulations and also the timing is really good because you've written a book about how to use humor where we work and so many of us are working virtually now. Is this a book about being funny on Zoom? Because I could use some pointers like right now, right now. Do you have anything to right. tell me? Okay, so pointer number one is take a screenshot right now of Dias' background. And then make that your background in your next Zoom call, um, because that's how you do it. Uh, no, you bring up a really good point, which is that these are really serious times. And our book is called Humor Seriously, trying to convince people to take humor seriously. And, you know, the question is, like, really, right now, it's time to take humor seriously amidst a global pandemic, amidst social and political turmoil, amidst climate change. Uh, you know, amidst all of a sudden you were thinking, wow, what a, what a perfect time to talk about humor or comedy or lightness or levity or balloons. 
it's pretty much the opposite of a good time to do this. Right. Yes, because none of this is humorous. And but Daya, to your point, you're exactly right, which is that it's in these times when humor can be most powerful. And so the three things that Jennifer and I have come to through our research is number one, humor has a transformative effect on our behavior and our psychology, on mental health, creativity, um, feelings of closeness with our communities, and even sense of meaning in our lives. Um, number two, it is a completely underleveraged asset, both in our personal lives and most especially at work, um, that our workplaces are far too humorless and that's um, seeping into our personal lives. And then third is it's a learnable skill. So we find that these small shifts in behavior and mindset are really all that it takes to reap some of the benefits, um, which again, really, really needed now more than ever. Also, you live longer <laughs> and are better looking. And both of them are equal, equally important. Like, you know, the better looking you get and also the extension of life. I love it. Jennifer, can you expand on the, on the live longer? Because that's actually a fascinating study. Okay, so it was a study done in Norway, which is not known for its sense of humor. I can say that I'm part Norwegian. <laughs> um, and so what these researchers did was they just simply followed people around for 15 years, not in a stocky way, just in a scientific way, and asked them, you know, like, do you have a sense of humor? Not, are you funny? Do you have a sense of humor? Which is very different, right? The individuals who said yes to that question lived on average eight years longer than those who said no to that question. And yes, that's a correlational study, but there's other research that we can talk about later because research is fun mm, and so people fun. like research. So uh, we can talk about it later. I, I love research. You're talking to a nerd right now. I, I want to add to that. That's really interesting because sense of humor is different from are you funny? Like, are you funny? It sounds very like confrontational. Like, are you funny? Tell me a joke. But do you have a sense of humor? It's like, are, can you enjoy life? Can you see humor in the world? Um, it, th th this book is not is is teaching you both how to have a sense of humor and to try to flex your humor muscle and be funny, right? Yeah, that's right. So we talk about how um, exactly that, that humor is like a muscle. And a lot of us have experienced quite a bit of atrophy. So how do we start climbing up the humor cliff um, that we know that we've all fallen off of? And the first and easiest thing to do is just to take stock of where humor already exists in your life. So we do this simple exercise with our students at Stanford where we have them for one week write down all the times that they laughed and all the times that they made someone else laugh. Now, even though this seems like a really frivolous and easy exercise, it's actually incredibly profound. And the reason is rooted in what's called the priming effect in psychology, which essentially shows that we will find what we set out to look for. If we're looking for laughs, then by the end of the week, we're going to report having a lot more laughs. By the way, uh, one of our favorite quotes from a student on week one of this exercise <laughs> was a journal entry, and it was, on Tuesday, I did not laugh, not once. Who knew a class about humor could be so depressing, right? So that's like, how we start our class at Stanford, people are like, this is going to be a really rough, you know, quarter. And then by the end of seven days, but even more so by the end of 10 weeks, our students report having so much more joy in their lives and they report having a lot more laughter with their friends. And it's not so much that we train them to be funnier, although we do have some techniques from comedians, which Daya, we would love to get some of your tips later as well. Um, you know, we absolutely give them that, but more so it's about navigating our lives in a fundamentally different way, which is on the precipice of a smile. 
right? What does it look like to just go through your day and look for reasons to be delighted rather than disappointed? Is that why you wrote the book? Did something fundamentally happen in your workplaces or your students when they graduated and they got jobs where they like, this is not what I thought life would be like. This is my dream job, but I'm not having fun. I mean, what prompted this this very extensive book on kind of how to was was there something that you were seeing that was happening across professional culture in America that made you think we could figure this out? Absolutely. So for me, we came at it from very different places. From my perspective, um, you know, I grew up um, like listening to stories around the dinner table of people dying. Um, which doesn't sound like it's an obvious storyline to humor, but, you know, my mom has been a volunteer for hospice for 40 years. So I have two younger sisters, Jan and Jolyn, and we would hear these stories of what people wish for on their last days of life. And the, what people mentioned were things like, I wish I was bolder and more authentic and more present and just savored, you know, the small moments more and, or had the chance to say, I love you one more time. One of the things that people said was, I just wish I didn't take myself so seriously, that I wish I let myself laugh more um, instead of chasing happiness that I cultivated it. And I think that planted the seed of, you know, the importance of not taking yourself so seriously, you know, really prioritizing a sense of humor and how does that contribute to real meaning in life? Um, so I think that that's one of the things for me. I think a second thing for me was about eight years ago, um, my husband and I wrote a book called The Dragonfly Effect, and it was about how do you harness story and the power of social networks to make positive change in the world. And in that process of the book um, launch, we actually met an entrepreneur named Amit Gupta, who was diagnosed with leukemia, um, and he needed to find a, a match in the bone marrow registry. He didn't have any. So we started a process of trying to find a match for him, harnessing story and social networks. What was so amazing about him was that the way he did it was with so much levity. He had comedians um, like Aziz Ansari and Chris Pratt do give a spit about cancer, you know, PSA campaigns that encourage people to get into the bone marrow registry. Or he do, would have BYOSA, bring your own South Asian parties at bars in New York to get them into the registry. And he found a match. And what was crazy was that humor for him was not a distraction from this campaign. It was absolutely an accelerant. That was fascinating for me. I, I love how Jennifer and Naomi, you've also brought your own South Asian today. So congratulations. That really seeped into your learnings. I appreciate it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, thank you so much for that. <laughs> Um, so Jennifer's, um, Jennifer's tale of coming to this was really about finding, you know, meaning in life and tackling these really incredibly profoundly dark and difficult, um, challenges. And for me, and, and not believing that humor was important until that moment. And for me, I had sort of the opposite journey, which is that I grew up feeling that humor was the most important thing. Uh, my senior quote in high school, remember how they do those senior quotes? Wait, Daya, do you remember what your senior quote was in high school? Oh, wow. I, I, I don't, I don't remember at all. It must've, it must've been something very, uh, like sarcastic and like, I don't care, man, I'm out of here. Like I, it was probably not memorable. <laughs> Wait, that's amazing. My, my, one of my good friends was, um, 
I feel uncomfortable. That was her senior quote. But anyways, most people are like, you know, Gavin DeGraw, sometimes the only way is jumping. I hope you're not afraid of heights. And mine was the most wasted day is that in which we have not laughed. And so it was so important to me growing up, so woven into the ethos of my family, where every birthday you would get a custom song about yourself that everyone else had written and it would be, you know, funny and ridiculous. So it was sort of our baseline in our family. And I didn't really think much of it. Um, but when I started working, things really changed. And all of a sudden, I felt like I was leading a double life, where at work, I felt all of this pressure to be serious and polished and professional. And all the while, on my weekends and nights, I was doing improv comedy. So this dichotomy, this sort of these two lives that I, were lead that I was leading felt completely unsustainable. And um, it just, you know, for me, it wasn't until I realized that humor was missing in my life that I became aware of its power. And, um, and it became really uh, apparent for me when I, a client once told me, I didn't really realize that I was leading this double life until a client one day told me that she basically thought that I was a sad cat lady who had no friends and didn't have any fun on weekends and had like color coordinated sock drawer and a cat who she guessed was named Cat. So I looked at myself in the mirror that Bonnie had put up and I was like, this really has to change. It's unsustainable. Um, so that was my, that was my moment. And then, and then I started getting into the research and working with Jennifer and realizing all of these things I had been keeping closed away, this sense of humor and levity and play was actually what could make me most successful at my job and of course have a more sustainable career in life. I, I found that kind of similar upbringing in my family sense of humor was so important unless you teased each other, unless you made fun of each other, it meant you don't love each other. So uh, just today, my mom sent me a text message and she was like, she's 65 plus. So she's like, great news. And I go, what? And she goes, I'm pregnant. And she goes, just kidding. I'm in line to get the vaccine. And I go, great. Which, <laughs> which one are you getting? And she goes, I'm getting the Madonna vaccine. And in 28 days, they'll give me the second dose of Madonna material girl. And I'm like, this is too much like this. What has happened to my mom? So like having a sense of humor was just culturally important in my family. My mom was really funny. My dad thinks he's funny because he's a physicist. So we, we humor him. He makes a lot of dad jokes. But I found the same dichotomy when I started working in consulting and finance. Uh, you know, I felt like somehow I had to hold back or I could only show this side to certain people or people would think I was unprofessional if I was funny or less likely to get promoted. Uh, so I held back a lot. Did, did you did you find in your research that other people are like that, that they're like, oh, my gosh, I don't want to be funny because people are going to think I'm a clown and they won't think I'm good at my job or serious. Absolutely. So one of the like biggest and, you know, sort of myths that people have is exactly that, that um, any expression of levity or humor or humanness actually belies the goal of being serious, effective and competent. Um, one of the most effective ways we found to you know, debunk that myth is just by explaining to our students, you know, it's not about being funny, lower the bar. That's not the goal. There's nothing worse than trying to be funny. Um, but everyone has their own humor style. So we have four. And so Daya, we want to hear what your style is or how you kind of make sense of this, this research. So the four styles are one, stand up. 
So this is your classic person who's supposed to be funny, right? They're extroverted and bold and irreverent, and they're not afraid to ruffle a few feathers to, you know, they might cross a line. So think a little bit like Amy Schumer, maybe. The second is uh, a sweetheart, and they tend to be earnest and honest. They would never say anything that would hurt people's feelings. So you might uh, think of Jimmy Kimmel as an example, or Bowen Yang. Then you have the sniper. They might be a little bit like, I don't know if they're more like your mom, but they are, well, maybe more you. Um, anyway, they're dry and they're like snarky potentially and they're sarcastic and they're masters of the unexpected dig. So like Michelle Wolf might be an example. And the last is Magnet and they're charismatic and extroverted. They always kind of bring people up, sort of life of the party. Jimmy Fallon would be an example. And now each of these humor styles have benefits, but they also have risks. So what are you? Uh, so this is page 238 in the book, and it's a quiz. And as a nerd, I love doing homework. So I, I'm so excited to share. I did this twice. I did this first as a professional funny person. And my yeah. scores for that were Magnet 11, Sniper 10, Stand Up 12, and Sweetheart 8. But then I did it again as just kind of a, a regular not on stage person and the and I was more sweetheart than the other things. And I think that's because, you know, I'm I, I you know, it's I, I'm a different way when I'm on stage sometimes than I'm with my friends. And sometimes my friends are surprised, they're like, that's your sense of humor? Should we really come see your show? I go, No, I like puns, I like dad jokes. So Sometimes we can code switch and we have different styles depending on whether it's the workplace or with our elders or with our best friends. So can you mix it up like that? Or am I just an outlier? Not only can you, you, you absolutely should. So this ability to code switch, this is part of why understanding your humor style is so powerful. And by the way, I love that you did the pen and paper version. You can also go to humorseriously.com and there's a quiz that doesn't require any math. It just requires you to answer some questions. Okay, there's this thing called the internet. And then you, what you do is you pull it up. Yeah. And then there's all this digital world. Yeah, you just do it at .com and then I think that's it. Al Gore has really given us so much. I, I need to go to this URL, as they call it. Yeah, go to the URLs. Everything's on the URLs, so just check it out there. Um, so, yeah, you're completely right. So uh, what we find is that it's important to, to flex your style, not just based on the situation, but also based on your status. And so, um, so for example, uh, we know that snipers and stand-ups tend to use humor that's a little bit more biting, uh, they actually feel intimate through teasing. So they use this sort of um, tear you down style of humor to show care and affection. On the other side, magnets and sweethearts might actually take offense to that style of humor because for them, what's really important to use is to use humor that's uplifting, that's connecting, that's sort of warm. Um, and, and so if you are, so depending on your situation, you might want to flex your style. Now, what's really important here is as you gain status, either in an organization or in your context, it's powerful to lean on self-deprecation. And so part of that is, uh, as you know well, there's this concept, never punch down. So never make fun of someone of lower status than you. Well, as you gain um, power and status in an organization, the playing field narrows. And so that's when one of the most powerful places to lean on uh, for humor is actually yourself.
So I'll give a, a personal example of this. When I was early in my career, I was in my mid to late twenties and I was doing these, um, these workshops for groups of executives. So I'd be in a room at the front of the room with like my hair up in a 1950s updo, like really trying to channel my most mature version of myself, which somehow was like a 1950s updo. Anyways, um, so I'm standing at the front of the room. Everyone else in the room is probably 15 to 20 years my senior and predominantly men. And in that context, what I found was sniper humor and stand-up humor was my most powerful um, form of humor. So I remember one workshop where someone interrupted me and said something, you know, snobby, like, hey, can you cut to the, the point in the workshop where you just get me to, um, or get my people to do what I want? And it was sort of this really uncomfortable moment. And I shot back and said, that's a great question, Craig. You're thinking about my session on mind control. Actually, come back next week. And, and that's a good session too, right? So I like took him down and it gained me incredible status. Everyone erupted in laughter. By the way, the bar in business is very, very low. That's what this teaches us. And, um, and so that's right. So that's one style of humor. And then when I'm teaching at Stanford, it's all magnet and sweetheart style humor because, because I'm, you know, the highest status person in the room in that context. Um, and so that's, what's going to be connecting. Okay. I have a question for you, Daya, which is you talked about how you context switch. And you also talked about how you had a similar experience in, you know, in business and professionally where you felt like you had to have this serious facade. So I'm curious, did you have any experiences where you were able to use humor effectively at work um, or where you sort of were able to context switch um, in a way that, that helped you? I found that as I got more comfortable, like when I was a more junior person and very low, you know, in, in the organization, I would use humor to make people at my level, like the people who were just out of college or grad school laugh. And we would often make fun of our bosses and I would shut the door and I would do impressions of them. And then there'd be a knock at the door and it'd be the boss. And we we're like, um, yeah, yeah, that spreadsheet, you know? Um, so it was kind of like in-group bonding, but then- yeah. When I realized I I could make people laugh, uh, similar to you, Naomi, I used it as kind of a superpower or to level the playing field because you can't see see how huge I am, but I'm five feet tall. I'm a tiny person. Um, in the business world, most of my colleagues were men. They were white men. They were taller than me. They could drink beer. They talked about sports. All, all these things that I, I didn't I didn't know about. I was on the math team. I was not skilled at any ball type of sports. Naomi, were you on math team too? Also was on math team. Yes. Oh, Jennifer, you're don't flex your coolness right now. We're we're having really Jennifer? Really? Also, just while we're on that topic, Jennifer was also homecoming queen of her high school. So. I want to be clear, I don't like beer. No. Guys, it's our birthday book day, but don't give us beer. Just do math math tests with Naomi and Maya. <laughs> yes, and you do it on the URL, not in the book like I did. But I did I did use humor after a while to, like you said, to level the playing field. And sometimes it was it was gendered. If I could play with the boys, I would get invited to breakfast meetings. I would like get information about deals. Uh, if there was some, you know, sexism in the workplace. I would handle it by being a little bit mean or funny, and it gave me tremendous personal power. So then I learned that I didn't have to drink beer like Jennifer 
or I didn't have to like play sports like Jennifer. I could just be a nerd like Naomi and I could just be myself and people would, you know, uh, not just uh, accept me, but respect me. Yeah. Hey, can I ask you another question? Yeah. What were your tips? Like, you know, a lot of times, like we go into the book about like actual concrete tips. We're living in a, a time right now where humor feels very risky. Um, so for example, you know, we talk a lot about truth and misdirection, that at the core of comedy is often truth, just simply observing what's going on and then subverting it or surprising someone. You can do it through exaggeration or contrast. Um, what, what have you found to be certain ways in which you can bring humor to life, especially in the workplace, but also on stage? And do you have any thoughts on like, how do you do that in a way that's not risk-free per se, but can mitigate some of the risks? It's, it's interesting because uh, in standup, uh, you have to establish rapport very quickly with the audience. You, you, you're on stage and immediately they've judged you. A friend of mine who's a comedian, as well as a trial attorney, she said, it's like, like being a trial attorney, the jury makes up their mind about you very quickly. And so it's like that in standup, they, they've already assessed. They're like tiny Indian woman. She's you know, probably good at math, true. Uh, you know, they, they've already made a profile of you the minute you get up on stage. So you can kind of use that to your advantage to uh, subvert that stereotype or subvert that norm. Um, in the workplace, I think it's, it's similar in that, um, you know, if you surprise people, if you come out with something a little bit wacky, it throws people off and it's unexpected that the quiet person is going to say something really hilarious or, um, you know, make people laugh in an unexpected way. And in terms of kind of the how-tos and, and the topics, I always try to think of um, who is your audience? Because over time with teams, you get to know who they are and what's funny to them. And you can kind of warm up to doing different jokes and, you know, things that they would appreciate. You don't have that as a standup. You kind of had to be funny immediately. But the great thing about the workplace is you're continuously getting more data about your team and what they find funny and what they like. So one is just observing people watch what they laugh at, watch what makes them smile, do more of that. And if you do something that they don't like, maybe do less of that. So it, you know, as, as a standup, it's hard because if I, you know, perform and a joke bombs, I have to recover from that. I think workplaces are a little bit more accepting. Everyone is just kind of trying to be the best they can be at work. Yeah, totally. I love that idea that, you know, the first 30 seconds and even less matter so much. And I think that's true, whether you're a comedian walking on stage, whether you are a CEO taking the stage, whether you're meeting with a new client or even a new friend or, um, you know, that those first 30 seconds, we make judgments about people so remarkably quickly. And that's part of why. Um, so one of the tips that we always give our, our students and the executive we work with is the power of a callback. So, Daya, do you want to tell everyone what a callback is? Yeah, a, a callback is if you if you kind of have a joke uh, up front and then you refer to it later on in the conversation. I mean, you can't wait too long. Don't wait like two years. And then two years from now, I'll be like, sequin Minnie Mouse, and, and no one will laugh. 
but it, you can refer to something that happened in the in, previously in conversation and just that idea of repeating it or bringing it back people laugh at it's like an inside joke uh, in the same conversation and it makes people feel like the value you know when mm -hmm. i threw out the beer joke which was not a high quality joke um, and then you were able to bring it back, you know, it makes me feel valued. So Daya, thank you for making me feel valued. But more yeah. seriously, in, in, in our work environments right now where inclusivity um, is really important, how do you actually, you know, create inclusive environments? Something as simple as a callback does that. Also, it is, you know, reasonably risk-free because if it created that laugh at time one, it's going to recreate it at time two. The great news about what's happening now is that we have so much in common, more so than, I mean, we're all talking about masks. We're all talking about virtual meetings. So many parents are talking about homeschooling. Uh, remember people were posting pictures about the breads that they had made, the sourdough starters. And there's this level of commonality in our society now where everyone is kind of on the same page. And so it's not so hard to make jokes that make people laugh because before someone would be like, I just went to vacation in Tahiti and someone's like, oh great, I'm still paying off my student loans, jerk, thank you. But now it's like, we're all masking. We're all like thinking about the vaccine. So the subject matter is so huge, what we can talk about and laugh about and people will get these jokes. So I think there's such a huge opportunity right now. Yeah. It's so true. And um, another thing that we that we teach our students in the course is there's this perception that humor is about inventing something from thin air, but it's just about being highly observant. And so it's about noticing what are the oddities and incongruities in our lives and um, and just calling and calling those things out. And so whenever someone comes to us and says, OK, I need to give a talk. How do I be funny or, you know, I need to have more humor. It's like, great forget everything, throw all of that away. Just tell me about yourself. What observations do you have about yourself um, or your world right now uh, you know, that, that, might, that might resonate with other people's experience of the world? I, like, for example, I saw this tweet the other day um, that said, this has been one of the best months on record for guys who like explaining stuff. Now, my dad loves explaining stuff. And so I saw this tweet and I was like, totally resonates with me. I, you know, I completely, I, I totally see that. There was another one that was, um, it was this is by the, the Twitter account was Bird Facts. And it said, pandemic day 20, day 25, I made bread. Day 95, I sure do miss my friends. Day 310, the White House appears to be under the control of a shirtless man in a Viking helmet. Day 330, Reddit's coordinate attack on Wall Street is going as planned, right? So this is just total observation of what's going on and how wildly incongruous this world is that we're living in. And in particular, what we thought was crazy and wild at the beginning of this pandemic versus what we like, what is going on in our world right now? You know, I, I, so the pandemic has been kind of equalizing, but also in some cases it's brought to fore inequality in our society. So a friend of mine who's African-American went to work after the Black Lives Matter protest. And every he said that everyone kept, quote, checking in with him. They're like, how are you doing? Are you OK? What's going on with you? And he said, can my white friends just please stop checking in with me? I'm I need to hire an assistant. Please check in with them instead. Um, how do you handle uh, real issues of race, gender, sexuality, 
um, these type of things that we're, we're bringing ourselves into the workplace more and more. I mean, 10 years ago, one of my friends was hesitant about putting up a photo of him and his partner. Um, you know, he's a gay man who got married, but now people are celebrating marriage equality. What about diversity in the workplace? We're not all from the same background and we may find jokes that are funny to us uh, or for our lived experience, but not for everyone there. Yeah, so part of this is humor, because humor gets at truth, it also often addresses some of the most real and challenging issues of our world. And there are people who can do this very well. There's Trevor Noah and there's John Oliver and there's Samantha Bee and there's you and there's other comedians who can tackle these issues with the nuance that they deserve because within comedy is such, um, there is such a world of nuance that we place, place onto any comedy that we hear because I bring my personal experience um, with all of my background, with all of my history, with all of my lived experience into how I interpret humor. And so one thing, so for that reason, you're exactly right. It's really, really hard to know right now what to joke about. And so one thing we do in our, in our book and in our course is give a couple different frameworks to think about this. So one is truth, pain, and distance. So Anne Libera, who's the director of comedy studies at the Second City, shares that all humor has some uh, combination of, of truth, pain, and distance. And understanding what these elements are and breaking them down can help you understand, is that going to actually work right now or should I reel it back? So truth, we talked about how the heart of comedy is truth. Um, at the same time, a painful truth without enough distance can come across as insensitive, and as hurtful, as offensive. Um, so next is pain. Obviously, pain can be physical, emotional. It can range from mildly embarrassing to severe tragedy and trauma. Um, and so, uh, so that's another element of, of humor, that we often find humor from these things that are uncomfortable. And then the third is distance. Now, distance can be temporal, it can be geographic. So temporal being, oh, it's too soon to laugh about that. Um, geographic, so is this something that is happening to someone I know very well, um, you know, a neighbor uh, versus someone halfway across the world? Or it can be psychological. So how relevant is this to my personal experience of the world? And so whenever we break down humor with our students, we ask them, first, truth. What if you removed the humor? Would you be comfortable putting that truth into the world? And sometimes it's like, actually, no, I shouldn't be saying in that context. Next, pain. How great is the pain and for whom? And finally, distance. Is the distance um, great enough? Or are you the primary person who should be making this joke, right? If this is a first-person lived experience, then you have more leeway to make humor, to use humor about something, versus if you're making humor about another group who's experienced something that you haven't. So that is... A nerdy way of saying it. Yes. All those math loving, you know, shorter, you know, South Asians that want to like do a math joke, like you got, you've got the whole domain, you've got it covered. Us, not entirely clear. The other thing that we do is this thing called spectrum, uh, a spectrum activity, which is actually super interesting. What you do is you have students go on one side of the classroom versus the other, uh, defined by appropriate or inappropriate. Then you show them, you know, um, comedy sketches, you show them tweets, you show them memes, and everyone physically moves to the side of the um, classroom where they deem, you know, how appropriate that, that particular meme, tweet, etc. is. Then they, everyone has to have an open mind. You call on someone who's on the extreme side of inappropriate, and you ask them to explain why. 
and then everyone listens and then they move. So you can start to see some people moving all the way to inappropriate because now they understand other people's perspectives. What's powerful about that is you start to understand what you think is appropriate might not be for others. You start to celebrate open-minded like shifts in perspective. And then third, you start to better understand, you know, the heterogeneity in people's perspective. So it's, it's a pretty, it's a pretty powerful um, uh, activity and it helps people better understand how to navigate the world we're living in right now. Uh, I have bombed on stage many times and it's never a great feeling. You're kind of, you know, slink back to the green room and you look over your notes and you're like, but it was funny last week or, or maybe this audience was too warm or didn't have enough to drink. And it's a horrible feeling. And at the same time, it allows you to try harder the next time or rewrite the joke or figure it out or to say, I've tried that joke five times and it continues to bomb. I'm going to put it away and then I'll revisit it, you know, at, you know, in a, at a different time. But there's not that sort of um, leeway in the workplace or is there? I mean, if you bomb and you put yourself out there, this is very vulnerable to use humor. It's not just kind of, uh, you know, a skill that you, you know, make other people feel like you are really saying, I'm going to try to make you laugh or I'm giving an offer. And what if it gets struck down or someone's like, that was offensive or that's rude or you're not funny. What do you, how do you recover from a bomb in the workplace? So first I have a question for you and then I will answer that question, which is, have you found any patterns in what bombs in what you either personally have tried or what um, less uh, seasoned comedians try that fails? Well, um, you know, let's, <laughs> I, I've, I've been to so many open mics and the open mic genre of thinking uh, something is a funny story and using three minutes to just talk about that usually bombs because you haven't written any jokes. You're just like, my life is interesting and I'm a young man and I'm talking about my anatomy. Like that basically does not work. Uh, and at no open mic I've ever seen has that worked. You have to write, you have to be a comedian, you have to do your job. But for me personally, uh, you know, what? it's it's so hard to find the variable. Sometimes a joke has bombed where it's just not the right audience. Sometimes a joke has bombed because I didn't set it up, you know, well enough to kind of tell people it's okay to laugh at this thing. Uh, sometimes uh, it's because I was earlier in my career and I didn't just go up on stage and just be like, you're going to laugh at this and you're going to like it, okay? Uh, so it's, sometimes it's confidence. But I have found a way to make difficult topics funny. I do a joke about police brutality in my act. I do a joke about supporting my friends who are trans, who are going through really difficult circumstances and being discriminated against. I do a joke about gender income inequality in the workplace. And I have found a way to make those jokes work, uh, even if the audience is not a bunch of woke people who are coming to see me. So sometimes for me, it's just practice. And then sometimes it's just bad joke writing. Like that joke that I thought was funny, it's just not, it's it's ha ha chuckle, but it's not funny for stage. Love it. Oh, so, okay, oh go ahead, Jennifer. Naomi, I'm dying to hear the police brutality joke. Is there any way that we could just 
hear that one and how you came up with it? Sure. Um, so um, I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama. And, uh, you know, in my set, I'll talk about how growing up in Alabama, if, if you're not white, you're black. And so, you know, people think that's funny because obviously in California, they know about South Asians. But truly, we experienced a lot of prejudice and racism as a, as a brown family in, in Alabama. Um, and not only that, a few years ago, there was an Indian man who was about 55 years old named Suresh Bhai. And he came from India to visit his son in Huntsville, Alabama, uh, because the son had a, a baby and the baby was a special needs baby. So this grandpa comes all the way from India to Alabama. He's walking around the neighborhood. Uh, the, na the people in the neighborhood call the cops on him and they call the cops by saying suspicious black man in the neighborhood. So, you know, my first joke is, these people are so dumb, they they don't know the difference. Like, you know, and I'm like, you know, if you're gonna stereotype us, be like, okay, this one's Indian, here's, here's a list of stereotypes. And then um, I go on to talk about how the police brutalized him. They slammed him against the car, he was paralyzed, the Indian consulate had to get involved, the jury acquitted that police officer. So, you know, I, it's a long setup, but I'm telling you exactly the story. And so I, tell my parents, I'm like, aren't you glad we don't live in Alabama anymore? Can you believe what happened to this 55 year old grandpa who came to visit his son? And my parents are like, oh my God, yes, we are so happy we don't live in Alabama anymore. Also, 55 years old, already a grandfather. When are you going to make us grandparents? <laughs> so so it's, uh, it's 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 really a joke about you know Indian parental pressure to get married all the time, but also it's a serious joke that people of color are in this together. It doesn't matter if you're a lighter skinned dark person, racism is racism, and you know we have to help each other through this process. So that joke works for Indian audiences, but it also works for mixed race audiences when uh, when this is top of mind for people when we're thinking about how horrible this is and what we need to do about it. Um, no, it was, it was amazing. I mean, you had, and I apologize too, because I feel like we're turning back all the questions on you. We're like, great question. Not going to answer it. Going to ask you one. Um, but the thing, uh, the thing you had asked was what to do when your joke fails. And there are two, um, in, in business, um, there are, by the way, we outline all of the most common reasons that, that humor fails in business. Either you're not context switching, you punch down, you didn't mind your medium. So, um, so it's it's fascinating to hear in the world of stand-up comedy, what are those reasons? Um, you asked about what to what to do when you fail. And what we find is um, it's really easy to brush off these fails and say, oh, they just didn't get it. They can't take a joke, you know, and it's their problem, not mine. And what we teach our students is if there's if you fail and you just don't get a laugh and it's lame, that's fine. Keep going. Actually, it'll increase people's perceptions of your confidence and competence. You're all good. But if you failed and you could have offended, then that is when we need to be leaning in. It's our, it's our responsibility to understand what went wrong. What did I miss? What's the context that I wasn't privy to? Per, per Jennifer's point about this spectrum exercise we do, right? What is the opinion on the opposite side of that spectrum that says that that joke is absolutely not appropriate to say? And so we tell our students, you apologize genuinely and you get really curious about what you missed and what you did wrong. So that just like stand-up comedians are working on their material and, um, and getting smarter, so are our students and people in business and in life, non-comedians, 
honing this craft and making sure that we can use humor to uplift people and bring people together rather than divide and tear down. And the other two things we do is we also encourage them to like get a trusted set of, you know, friends either at work or whatever environment you're going to start, you know, testing out your, your magnet or your sniper. Um, Sarah Cooper talks a lot about this, you know, um, Sarah Cooper's uh, a comedian who's in our class as well and mentors the, um, the students, you know, just, you know, get that trusted set of advisors and friends so you could start to riff and develop the 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 humor like you were um, describing and the other one is just again as Naomi said earlier on the bar is so low one of our favorite studies is where um, there was basically an individual that was doing a negotiation with someone around a piece of art and um, the answer uh, and and either said you know here's my final offer or they said here's my final offer and I'll throw in a pet frog and the pet frog joke is legit, you know, you know, not good. Lame. But the individuals who are negotiating with that person with the pet frog line paid 18% more. And so, um, and they reported actually enjoying the negotiation a lot more. So you could start to understand the ROI on this is significant. And so overcoming all of these risks and understanding how to read the room or not punch down or mind your medium or, you know, context switch becomes much more valuable because you start to understand not only how much more money you're going to get in your life. 18%. Also, yes, 18%. Not how long you're going to live longer, which is eight years, but also how much better looking you will be. Boom. 12%. That's right. Amazing. We have just two minutes until we open it up for audience questions, but is there anything else about the book? Uh, I think better looking, living longer and making more money are great. Uh, who else is this book for? I mean, what, what else, you know, should we, who should we give it to? I mean, is it rude to be like, you need this? Uh, like, what should we do with the book? How should we get it? How should we give it? anyone who has relationships. So the one thing we didn't touch on is, is that it makes us more satisfied in our relationships and also quickens the path to friendship. Yeah. So if you don't have relationships, you also need this. Book. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, that's it. And the, you know, so we have the, the book is out today, which is a really, um, summarizes all of this in much better detail than we can. And then we also created this 21 day, um, boot camp, which is, um, every day for 21 days, you get these text messages and that tell you um, little tips on what to do that day. They share behavioral science. And the idea is, like we said at the beginning, this is a muscle that you can flex. And so if you get good, if you make these small behavioral shifts, um, it can actually have a really big impact. So all you have to do is go to the URLs and type in humorseriously.com. Go to all of the URLs, people. The, the World Wide Webs. All right. So we've got a couple of um, audience questions already brewing. Uh, so Nick asks, uh, what's your advice for including humor when you're giving a big presentation to management for the first time? So there's a, a power dynamic and a status dynamic, but also maybe nervousness and, you know, PowerPoint slides. So what, what do you do in that case? Make a callback. So sit in the room, listen to what they're talking about, and then something that that group has already laughed about, whatever that specific group has laughed about before you start speaking, have the first words out of your mouth be a callback to that specific thing. Because it's going to show mental agility. It's going to show, it's going to, when people laugh, you now are part of an in-group. You have a sort of an inside joke with them. 
And, uh, and it's the easiest way to get a laugh, easiest, easiest low stress way to get a laugh. Jennifer, did you want to add to that? Or? No, I thought that was fantastic. Um, no. Jeremy asks, um, is there research to support that you can learn to be funny or is having a sense of humor innate? It's such a good question. Um, so there, you know, um, first, we actually don't know of any research that shows um, that humor um, can be improved, but there is a lot of research um, suggesting that, um, you know, with a growth mindset, pretty much every skill that you thought was innate, including intelligence, um, including athleticism, actually can be improved. Muscles are muscles, Jeremy. And so I think that the key part here that we're trying to unearth is what are those concrete, um, you know, steps that you can take to sort of basically, you know, train that muscle, build that muscle, strengthen that muscle, do something with your muscle and, you know, basically improve it. So if you take the growth mindset work as along with these ideas of what's holding us back, which are, you know, misperceptions or myths, debunk those, start to understand your humor style, create a trusted environment where you can start experimenting with these ideas around truth and, you know, um, misdirection, exaggeration, contrast, emotion. Uh, Daya, you do this a lot. You dial up the emotion, um, which creates like a good rant environment. Um, and then, you know, de-risk your risk through these tools that Naomi just said. That's where you start to see the improvement. As someone who has voted the least funny person in their family unanimously by everyone in the family, including the dog, the dog votes too, um, I can say this is something that you can improve on if you just give it six years and write a book on it. Um, also, uh, it seems like, you, you know, you're talking about muscles. So for all the fitness bros paying attention, you got to get work on your gains. And this book is like whey protein for your gains. So that, that's I wanted to add that for all of the bros. This metaphor has legs. <laughs> Uh, Laura asks, uh, what would you follow a leader who didn't have a sense of humor? And what's the connection between leadership and humor? Yeah, so there's this great quote by leadership guru John Maxwell that says, if you're leading and no one's following, you're just taking a walk. Uh, not having a sense of humor is a great way to take a walk in leadership. So um, we know, uh, we know a lot of research around what perceptions of people who do have a sense of humor. So we know that when people rate their leaders as having a sense of humor, they rate those leaders as 27% more motivating, and those employees report being 15% more engaged in their jobs. We also know that people who use humor in a professional context are seen as 37% higher in status. So blind study, they are uh, rated as higher status people. They're also seen as more confident and more competent uh, by those around them. And so we think of, and, and by the way, this is really important, Laura, to recognize is the key here is not being funny. The key is having a sense of humor, which simply means signaling that you appreciate it, that it's welcome here. Um, it doesn't mean necessarily getting in front of the, you know, in front of the company and telling jokes. And and you mentioned like being a leader, you can you can be self-deprecating, you can you can laugh at mistakes, you can talk about yourself in a way. So it's part of it is, you know, having a sense of humor. Part of it is as a leader, what is my sense of humor and how do I create culture? Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, also part of it is just identifying people in the organization 
that are really good at it. If you have a value of, you know, humor is important. And we see this in leadership now, right now, it used to be that, you know, leaders needed to be revered and now they need to be understood. It used to be like, you know, like courage and resilience and, um, you know, vision were the key leadership traits. But what we're finding right now is emotional intelligence, humility, which comes with self-deprecation, um, an ability to, you know, be inclusive and, and you know, have, you know, a greater sense of, of empathy, not to mention authenticity. These are the types of traits of a new type of leader that really do correlate with, with having a sense of humor and being able to, you know, put that as, as something that's valued within the team, uplifting others who do have it. Uh, and and just to follow up, we, ha we have, um, uh, so Jennifer, you and I kind of messaged about this. Are there examples, um, to follow up with that question, examples of CEOs or leaders or executives that you think have done a great job with this? Yeah, it, well, so our book is chock full of them. Go to humorseriously.com. That URL will take you magically to the book. Um, but no, we like spotlight Sarah Blakely. We uh, spotlight Leslie Blodgett, Secretary Madeline Albright, um, Rick Levin, of course, Sarah, uh, Eric, Eric Schmidt. So there are these leaders and they're not all the ones that we think of, right? Like Dick Costello was trained in stand-up. So was Sarah Blakely. You always think of Richard Branson as, you know, kind of like more stand-up oriented. But all of these leaders that we profile, such as, you know, again, Sec Secretary Madeleine Albright, she has a bit of sniper in her. And as she negotiated with the Russians using sniper type of, you know, physical humor, you can start to see how effective it is in showing up just as a human, not as, you know, Secretary Madeleine Albright. And so you start to see, um, you know, types, different types of ways that that humor comes alive. What's super interesting, and I remember you said that you had a friend who asked this question, what are the kind of the, the presentations, the onboarding, uh, the messaging, the, the concrete things that, that leaders do um, that actually make humor become a really important value and be perpetuated? And your friend, um, I can't remember what the answer was, but it was, do you remember? The, uh, so yeah, a, a, a friend of mine reached out to me and gave me an example of, I think it was Data Miner, a company that was using yes. onboarding and a video that they were using that starred the CEO as kind of, you know, like a blooper reel or something funny. So culture was created from the moment that you enter the company as part of your onboarding rather than just here's your laptop, here's the badge, this is the break room, eat what you want in the fridge. I mean, that was the before times. Now there's no fridge except yours. But, you know, it's a way to really say, this is how we start culture and community here by having a sense of humor. Yeah, one of um, our faculty, uh, co-faculty members um, is Connor Demon-Yaman, who um, is, is co-CEO of Merit America. And, um, and so, um, you know, he brings humor to life in every small little nook and cranny and is so good at knowing what's the value of, of humor to diffuse tension, to build bonds, to spark creativity. So there's a great story that we love about him. I'll let Naomi share it. Oh, who me? Um, so this is actually on his first ever Zoom all hands meeting with his entire organization. And, uh, and it was a tough time for our country, for their organization. And so he wanted to signal care, reassurance, vulnerability as a brand new co-CEO of this organization. So he's on Zoom, entire company is there. 
and he goes to hand off to his co-CEO, Rebecca Tabor. As Rebecca is talking, Connor leaves his screen chair on and we, he pretends like this is an accident. So the entire organization is watching him as he like closes out the PowerPoint slide. They can all see his desktop. So they're all thinking, oh my gosh, this is horrifying. And he opens up Chrome, types in Google, and then he starts a search. Like, keep in mind, every single person in the organization is watching being like, this guy is out of here. So he types in things inspirational CEOs say during hard times. And then he interrupts Rebecca and goes, Rebecca, I just have a couple more things to say. She passes it back and he starts reading them word for word. Uh, I just want to assure you that I am here for you, the good times and the bad, right? So reading them word for word. And it was this beautiful moment, everyone cracked up of, of humor, but also of signaling a vulnerability um, of humility that I'm not taking myself too seriously. I really want to show up for you and I don't quite know how. Um, and that way humor um, is, is an antidote to arrogance. And it's an antidote to a lot of the things that keep us so distanced from our leaders. Um, I mean, it was just, it was a beautiful moment. So I'll, everyone just keep your screen share on, Google something weird. Okay, yeah, in, in a good way, not in, not in the Jeff Tubin kind of way. We, that's not what we're suggesting. You have to plan this in advance. Like that. Yes. Yeah, let's do that. Let's do that. Marilyn has a question and it's, I used to work in the entertainment industry where my humor was okay. And now I work in a much more serious world of nonprofits and I've had a hard time adjusting. Is there a connection between industry and this research you've been discussing? I mean, are there some workplaces and industries that are just more humorless or is this, you know, based on who's at the company or leadership? Yeah, it's first, it's so based on the tone that's set by leadership. It's based on what is the culture, what's the environment. It's based on what is your small core team and how to, you know, um, what is the dynamic there? The, the interesting thing, though, uh, Marilyn, I think believe it was who asked this question, is the darker and the harder the places that we go, the more humor that we that we tend to find when we really go deep. So we share stories in the book of um, of people in the Marines. We share stories of um, you know people who are oh my gosh, there's a story of um, a group called the Elders, which is a group of global global leaders who had convened. Um, basically to solve the world's most intractable problems. And this is, you know, Nelson Mandela, it's um, uh, President Jimmy Carter, it's uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu. And all of these people had convened with, with Richard Branson and Peter Gabriel to have the first meeting of the elders. And Jean Olwang, who, who was running the meetings, showed up with Richard and had this really thick PowerPoint, like PowerPoints for three days worth of you know decks and stats and um and richard walks in and he goes great i'm gonna need you to cut that in half and gene goes i'm sorry you need me to cut it in half like we need we have really important things to accomplish here today and this is really serious and he goes the only way that we're going to accomplish what we need to accomplish is if we're one half work and one half play and so for the three days there half of the time was structured and half of the time was playtime. And what they found, and Jean describes this beautiful moment where 
um, Archbishop Desmond Tutu and President Jimmy Carter are sitting on a beach together with their toes dug into the sand, having a conversation and laughing. And that conversation was the start of the founding principles for the elders that Nelson Mandela would later then present to the world. And so what I would say, um, Marilyn, is it's especially when we're tackling some of these hardest, uh, the, some of the hardest, darkest, most serious work that we need to have room for levity and play um, and connection, which of course we know that humor brings. And you have a great example in the book about the aviation industry. So for example, you know, before the innovations of Southwest Airlines, we thought of, you know, the same announcement on, you know, all the airlines, put your seatbelt on, oxygen mask, blah, blah, blah. And then Southwest really changed that with humor and uh, having their sense of, sense of humor, not just for the employees, but it sounds like it was all the way, you know, to the very top. And there's also another example about even, uh, I'm not gonna tell you the, the audience listening what it is, but you have to read the book. There's a great example with Heidi Roizen in it. And it's, a, it's an example of how a tough situation you can easily disarm and it just takes a very small amount. So we, can, we have the power to change these organizations little by little. Hey, you're really outstanding in this kind of interview forum. We like the fact that you just basically dropped you know, a mystery veil for everyone. So if you wanna know more about Heidi and have secrets from comedians and also figure out how to you know, live a more meaningful life, come to humorseriously.com. Um, Naomi, that was such a great final um, story. It made me um, want to conclude this. I know we have a, our second, second, 60 second idea. Say that five, five times fast. Anyway, it's, we really believe this in our book, which is the power of gravity and levity give power to both. So in these times that are so hard, there is so much tragedy. There is so much uncertainty. Um, sometimes it does feel, you know, to Marilyn's point that the ability to bring some levity into a context doesn't feel possible, doesn't feel respectful, doesn't feel right. Um, but our ability to actually move society forward, our team forward, our organizations forward, and our families forward is absolutely dependent on the opportunity and ability to find some levity in these, in these hard times. So anyway thank you so much for doing such an outstanding job we this was the best book birthday party ever yay happy book birthday and and naomi did you have something to say because the inforum tradition is to ask you know please share your 60 second idea to change the world do you have anything to add or do you have 60 seconds worth of wisdom you want to just drop casually into this conversation yes mine is gonna be less than 60 seconds and that is what does it look like to navigate your life on the precipice of a smile? Just ask yourself that. Go around your day and navigate your life on the precipice of a smile for a week, and it will change your life. If everyone in the world does that, it will change our world. Thank you so much, Naomi and Jennifer, for those awesome 60-second nuggets. Thank you to the Commonwealth Club and Inforum. And as we wrap it up, uh, if you'd like to watch more virtual programs or support the Commonwealth Club's virtual programming, uh, please visit commonwealthclub.org slash online. Uh, also to plug again, the book is Humor Seriously, sold everywhere. 
uh, and maybe even places where we don't even know. It could just appear in front of your door. Also, please review it on Amazon because this week is essential. So if you've bought the book, if you've read it, send some send some love to these wonderful people. Uh, I'm Daya Lakshmi Narayan, and you can find me at dayacomedy.com or on Twitter at Daya Live. Uh, everyone, stay safe, mask up, and don't forget to laugh whenever possible six to 10 feet away from individuals. Thank you so much. You've been listening to a podcast of Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Support our podcast and find out about upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org.